Welcome to the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is to strengthen and equip church and ministry leaders just like you through practical and theological discussions about some of the most pressing and important issues facing the local church today. We feature conversations with members of our team here at New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, as well as interviews with authors and thinkers from around the world. You can follow The Essential.Church on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Watch episodes on our YouTube channel and also subscribe to our podcast via iTunes and Spotify, where you'll find a full archive of previous conversations. And now, here is this week's episode of The Essential Church Podcast. Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt. And today I'm going to take you to a conversation that Daniel Grothy and I had recently with Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt about his book, The Love That Is God, An Invitation to the Christian Faith. Uh, Fritz is how he's known to his friends, and uh, he's a professor of theology at Loyola University, Maryland, and a permanent deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore assigned to the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen. He's a Catholic guy, and this book that he wrote was one of the finest books that I personally read last year. I think that in every generation, there needs to be a reintroduction, a representation of the Christian faith, not just to the church, but to the world in a way that's simple and clear without sacrificing depth, and he's achieved that in this book. I loved this book so much that I had the New Life East staff read it last year, and they loved it, and we were so delighted that he agreed to being on the Essential Church podcast today. So this is a wide-ranging interview that Daniel and I do on what do we mean when we say that God is love? How do we say God is love with fear and trembling? And how do we speak the love of God into a world that's full of violence and very divided without sacrificing any of the justice of God. We talk about that and much more, including what it might look like for Catholic brothers and sisters to listen to evangelical and charismatic brothers and sisters and vice versa. One of my favorite podcast episodes that we've ever done. So without further commentary from me, here's to the interview. Well, we're really happy to be here uh, today with our friend, uh, Dr. Frederick Christian Bauerschmidt. Uh, he's the professor of theology at Loyola University, University, Maryland, and a permanent deacon of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. And he's also the author of The Love That Is God, An Invitation to the Christian Faith, which is what uh, we're going to talk about today. Dr. Bauer Schmidt, we're happy to have you with us. I'm happy to be here. And I know that some of your friends uh, and people in your world call you Fritz. So do you want us to call you doctor or yeah, professor you can call me Fritz. or Fritz? Okay. All right. Well, great. Fritz is fine. Yeah. We can be friends. Okay. <laughs> I mean, and it figures, you know, your book is so much about friendship. So we're, you know, it's apropos. Listen, I loved your book. The Love That Is God was one of my favorite books last year. I can't remember who told me to read it, but somebody about midway through the year said, there's this new book out and you got to get your hands on it. And I might have zipped through it in an afternoon or two. It was just so beautiful and compelling to me. And I was so drawn in by it that I thought, I have to have my staff read this book. And so the staff of New Life East walked through uh, The Love That Is God together, and they were so compelled by it. And as I was saying to you off camera just a little bit ago, I think in every generation, one of the things that we need is we need a sort of representation of the essentials of the Christian faith. Just what is our gospel? What are we trying to give to the world? And there are books that come to mind when we think about that genre. You know, I think about um, Augustine's Confessions in some ways was kind of that, him trying to set forth the Christian faith in an idiom that was very personal and contemporary for him, or C.S. Lewis, mere yeah. Christianity. Um, but here you are, you come along in this world that is so fractured and fragmented, 
And you've just, you've talked to us again about who God is and what God's trying to accomplish um, in a way that is at once simple and clear without dumbing down or diluting the Christian message. I mean, you introduce our our readers to some real heavyweights in the history of Christianity. So we're really, really excited to talk with you. What I would love, uh, Fritz, is if you would just tell our listeners kind of the story of the love that is God, because in many ways, this is a, it's a simple book, but it's a very culminating book for you in a lot of ways. So I'd love to hear this. We'd love to hear you tell the story of the book. Um, yeah. So as you, as you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a permanent deacon and I, uh, you know, preach on a, on a, on a regular basis, um, at, at mass and it was the sixth Sunday of Easter season, which in the lectionary had a kind of a happy convergence of the story of the conversion of Cornelius, um, the reading from the first letter of John, God is love, and then uh, Jesus saying, you know, no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for his friends. I call you my friends. And as I was looking over those readings, it struck me that like, wow, I mean, this, if like nothing but these three sections of scripture survived, maybe it would be enough that, that there's <laughs> something about the nature of Christianity that was really captured uh, by these things. And so I gave a homily where I said, look, Christianity is um, really pretty simple. And I, you know, put it in five points, you know, God is love. The love that is God is crucified love. Um, you, can't love God without uh, well, the the Spirit invites us into friendship with the risen Jesus. Yep. You can't love God without loving other people, and we live out our love from the community of the church. Mm-hmm. And you know, is a pretty as Catholic homilies tend to be. It was under ten minutes long, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, at the end, I said, you know, and it's there. It is. It's pretty simple, but of course, the challenge, the hard part, is living it. And after mass, I was you know standing at the church door, shaking hands as one did in the pre-COVID days, and uh, uh, a, a woman I knew whose uh, daughter had gone to school with my with my children uh, said to me that she really wished her daughter could could have been there to hear it because her daughter really had no time for the church and really had no time for Christianity uh, anymore. Uh, but she thought that I had like really presented it in such a way that maybe her daughter, you know, would would be able to hear what I said. And I and I thought about it and I thought, well, in some ways, I'd like my own children to have heard this. <laughs> and I uh, so I I ended up stuck at an airport for at about a 12 hour wait because of a missed flight. Uh, so I had sitting at an airport. Uh, for 12 hours, and I pulled out my laptop and started writing. And the whole thing came together in about six weeks. Um, uh, Because I'd been, as you said, it's sort of a culminating book. These are ideas I've been thinking about a lot. I've been trying to communicate them to the students I teach. I've been trying to preach about them in homilies. Mm. Um, So I guess I'd I'd thought about all of this stuff a lot. But of course, the challenge is trying to put it into a form that conveys the both the simplicity and the the richness yep. of um, what what Christianity is about, yeah. and uh, you know, so it it you know, my my wife uh, read the chapters as I wrote them and gave me some feedback on them, and uh, you know, the people at Erdman's were kind enough to to agree to publish it. So yeah. Um, well, That's kind of how it happened. I'm glad that they did. It feels to me, the book feels like an apologetic uh, for the Christian faith 
in the modern world. And so I'd be curious to talk with you at some point how it's been received, especially by those, uh, you know, the younger generations, let's say the under 40 crowd or the under 35 crowd. But I want to ask you this. We don't have time quite to talk about how, how the book's been received. But I want to start talking about your content just by asking you this question. Your first big point in the book is that God is love, which if anybody believes in God at all, it's, that's a difficult concept to disagree with. But then what you do, so we've got kind of this warm and fuzzy start, but then what you do is you take us on something of a biblical and theological tour de force, I think, to show that the love of God is a demanding concept, and maybe it's not quite what you think when we say it. So can you talk to us some about that? Why'd you choose to do it that way? Um, well, I suppose in some ways, I, I do think that this is sort of the what I call the radical claim of the Christian faith, not in, I mean, in the sense that it's really at the root of, of what Christianity is about, is that, yeah, that, that God is love. But then the, the second movement is, uh, what Jesus says, right? That, you know, no greater love has anyone than to lay down his life for a friend, right? So that love gets defined not in some sentimental way, but in a in really a, a hard-edged way yeah. mm -hmm. um, through the cross. You know, you want to know what the love that is God looks like when it takes visible historical human form? Well, it looks like a looks like Jesus on the cross. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the the it's hard to sentimentalize the cross. I mean, people do it. Don't get yeah, me wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I think the, the cross is a wonderful um, hedge against sentimentalization yeah. of that central claim that God is love. Tell me about the forces at play in the world that we're living in that make point number two uh, it just tips you on the ear. You know, it's crucified love. Like what's around us? that makes that a hard word to receive? Well, I mean, I, I think we live in a highly therapeutic culture, right? And um, a, a culture that has a tendency to want affirmation without transformation. Uh -huh. um, and mm. of, of course, I think therapy is great, mm. but what sure. I always point out to people is, you know, if you are undergoing physical therapy or even, you know, good psychotherapy, there's a lot of pain involved. Right. Mm -hmm. right? And I think we need to be willing to undergo a kind of a, a spiritual therapy if we're going to reclaim the notion of God as love. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think we're a, we're very much a pain averse culture. Yeah. Um, and I think we... Um, and I think that that if you're pain averse, you're never going to really be able to understand the kind of love that God is. Yeah. Can you say more to us about that? I mean, <laughs> again, when we say God is love, what we think is usually it's this kind of soapy, sentimental, you know, a kindly old, uh, kindly old man sitting on a chair, a grandfather figure, that's God. But I think one of the things I walked away from this book with the impression, like you teach us to say God is love with fear and trembling. There is a there is a pain involved. There's a cru there's a crucifixion involved, and not just for God. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> there's a crucifixion oh, yeah. involved for us too. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So I mean, it was it's interesting. So in, I'm teaching an introductory theology class to first year students uh, this semester, and uh, we were reading Luke's Gospel, and we 
I had them write little reflections on the Jesus's uh, statement that, you know, he wants to save his life will lose it. And he loses it for my sake. will save it. And um, it was really interesting that they all wanted to interpret it as like, well, you believe in God. And that means that when you die and lose your life, you, you actually get to go to heaven. And I was like, well, okay, but remember right before this, there's this something about taking up your cross daily. Mm. Like, well, what does that mean? (laughs) And they really had to kind of struggle with this idea that we might actually have to undergo a kind of a painful loss Mm in order to actually find something that will make us truly happy. Hmm. Um, Now, admittedly, they're 18 years old. You know, Mm -hmm. they, most of them haven't, you know, had, most of them haven't had much opportunity to get knocked around by life. And I think a lot of us, by the time we get to be, you know, 40 or something, uh, have recognized that there's a, a role of for, for, you know, struggle and suffering and pain that seems to be part of every life. Um, But I think there's something in our culture that wants to kind of keep us perpetually 18 years old and not, um, not really face up to some of the the painful struggles that are involved in life. And that, you know, daily crucifixion is not, it's not a mere metaphor. Sure. So Brueggemann talks about, you mentioned the therapeutic world that we're living in. Brueggemann talks about, you know, summarizing our society as sort of capitalistic, militaristic, and tribalistic. Uh, what do you think crucified love says to those forces at play around us? Well, yeah. Um, I I mean, one of the things that I find found very uh, powerful in the scripture readings that uh, undergirded the the homily that inspired the book was the story of Cornelius the, the centurion. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think the way I, I put it is, you know, that uh, God calls us into a church in which we look around us and we're surrounded by people with whom we have nothing in common yeah. except the fact that God has called us to be together in this place. Right, right, right. And these are people we would never choose to be a part of. And I do think on the one hand, I take very seriously the notion of the church's call to be countercultural, right? Uh, I, I mean, I studied with Stanley Hauerwas, yeah, so I sure. you know, kind of imbibed that, uh, not quite with my mother's milk, but, but close. And I think there is something true that the church is called to be countercultural. But if we let our countercultural stance become just another form of tribalism, right? Yep. Um, another form of militancy, right? Uh, then we're not really being countercultural. Sure. Yeah. And I think some Christians, I think both evangelical Christians and Catholic Christians, think they're being countercultural, but they're actually just reproducing the militancy and the sure. tribalism of our culture. Yeah. Um, and I think the story of Cornelius uh, is such a powerful story because, you know, Peter's expectations of who he is supposed to, who's supposed to be part of his tribe are completely upended by yeah. the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we need to be open to that as well. Yeah. Fritz, I want to ask you this question, just to, we're going to continue in this vein, and I want to sharpen this up a little bit. I think one of the things I admire about you, and I think this is part of why your writing is salty, is that you're both a pastor, 
Um, so you have a pastoral role in the church and you're seeing, you're, you have a pastor's heart, you're paying attention to trends and thinking about how do we care for the souls of our people, but you're also a professor, so dealing with young people. So then you kind of see the early adopters to new trends, which means that you have a front row seat both from uh, both for the best things about us and the things that we're running away from, <laughs> you know? So I'm wondering in this vein, if the love that we're called to is a cruciform love, we're called to carry our cross into the heart of the world, what are the crosses of love that you see us running away from right now, whether we are evangelical or Catholic Christians? Where do you see us ducking from the call to carry our cross into the heart of the world? Oh, there's so many places. <laughs> um, I, I, On the one hand, I think, um, and this would be a kind of a standard criticism one might make of Western Enlightenment culture, you know, I think we're we're ducking real community mm. uh, in favor of affinity groups mm. or even just online echo chambers. Mm. Um, I think we're ducking the the challenge of tradition, the fact that maybe we are not necessarily the best and brightest product of the human race, that the past might actually have something to teach us. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think that the church is often in the name of tradition and community, ducking the, the challenge of listening to the voice of the outsider. Mm. Um, I mean, I can, I can say that, you know, as a, as a Roman Catholic and as an ordained minister in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, the past 20 years of dealing with the sex abuse crisis, I mean, one of the really sobering mm. things about it is it was non-Catholics and ex-Catholics who largely held the church accountable huh. when the church couldn't hold itself accountable. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is something that we need to take really seriously in terms of listening to the voice of the outsider. Mm -hmm. It's not simply that we've got this great community, that we have this great tradition, that we have this great theology to offer the world. I think we do. But we also have to be aware that we can distort those things. And often the only way we can recognize the distortion is maybe through the world's rejection of what we're offering mm -hmm. um, or the world pointing out to us just kind of basic human failures of, of Christians as individuals and as a community. Um, so I think, you know, there's also there's evasions on all sides. Mm -hmm. Dr. Bowersmith, we have a lot of evangelical and free church people listening, charismatic Pentecostals. Um, can you talk to us about the gift of Catholicism? What is the gift that the Catholic Church, maybe in this moment, can give the world? Speak to people who don't know it from the inside and tell us. We, we could talk about the, the foibles of any of our family of origin, you know, our spiritual families of origin. But what is maybe one of the one or two gifts that you think the Catholic Church has to offer the world right now in this moment? Well, I think the Catholic Church is a little bit like uh, whatever the name of that reality show is, where they, you know, buy people's storage units and open them up and find, find them full of stuff. <laughs> Um, I mean, the Catholic Church throws away nothing. Uh, we're the hoarders of the Christian tradition. Um, and I I do think that one of the things that the Church offers is a very, very rich tradition, right? Um, that being said, the, the Church 
um, partly because of its embeddedness in tradition, uh, does, I think, sometimes with regard to modern culture, we, we take on the role of being the one who says no, mm. right? This you know wonderful new idea comes down the road and the Catholic Church says no to it. Mm. Now, sometimes we are, we're proved wrong, right? Uh, but I think a lot of times what the church offers uh, Christians is uh, an inclination to push pause before making a change. You know, um, I think it's actually a gift of the church that we change so slowly. Yeah. The, the problem that arises is that then you often attract um, into the church and particularly into the leadership of the church, people who like saying no, mm-hmm. right? Who, <laughs> who say no gleefully rather than sorrowfully. Because, uh, you know, people are coming and asking things that they're convinced will make them happy, right? right. You know, maybe we need to, you know, change our views on the permanence of marriage, or we need to change our views on, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. And it's not that these are wicked people, right? These are people who are just convinced that something is going to make them happy. Right. And when the church says, well, no, you can't have that, the church has to say that sorrowfully, Mm. because you're not rebuking a wicked person. You're 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 trying to um you know divert somebody from doing something that that at least you're convinced is going to hurt them mm. uh but the church can there are people who like saying no mm. i hate saying no <laughs> i do it but i don't like it yeah. um so i do think the tendency of the the catholic church because of its embeddedness in tradition to to change slowly can be very frustrating to live with because I'm just as modern as the next person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it it's in a culture in which changes, it seems to me to be occurring at an increasingly rapid pace. Mm-hmm. I think there is something to the church's slowness that's actually kind of a gift. I huh, love that. I love that. I'm, I'm thinking about, as you're saying this, Fritz, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about listening, like one of the, one of the crosses that we're ducking is the demand to listen to others, listen to people that are different from us. And um, I think the first place that we learn how to do that actually is inside. Um, it's inside our faith tradition. So we can't, we're never going to stand a chance of listening to the world if we can't listen to each other. So I want to dovetail off of that last question and maybe just ask this question because I'm interested in this from you. Um, where do you see evangelicals and charismatics, guys like us, needing to listen a little bit more to our Catholic brothers and sisters, and then vice versa. Where do you think the, the Catholic Church maybe needs to listen a little bit more to what's going on in the evangelical and charismatic world? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I do think that, and I, and I sense this more and more from my evangelical and charismatic friends, you know, that an, an openness to the, the riches of the Christian tradition, um, you know, I mean, I think, for example, among charismatics, um, you know, some of these medieval mystical writers that yeah. I've worked on, um, I, I think, you know, you can interpret a lot of their experiences yeah. uh, kind of in dialogue with charismatic prayer practices. Totally, absolutely. And so I think there's room for a kind of a fruitful exchange mm-hmm. in in that kind of in that kind of dialogue. But you're not. That's not going to happen if you think that, 
you know, the the gift of tongues, you know, vanished sometime before the end of the book of Acts and suddenly reappeared in the late 19th century, <laughs> right? Right. Um, that and that somehow the spirit was just absent in right. that in that long interregnum. Right. Um, uh, so I think a sense of, a, of the continuity of of the of the tradition. Um, I also think, you know, the Catholic sense of the objectivity of God's work in the sacraments, mm. right? I, I think one of the things about the the sacraments is that they can save us from the illusion that if we're not feeling it, then God is somehow not at work. That's yeah. right. Right. So, you know, I can go, I, I always say I can go years without a religious experience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, but I think of the, you know, the the continuing practice of the celebration and reception of the sacraments is like water dropping on a rock mm. and it kind of gradually wears you away mm. and um, grace is working on you and is transforming you, but in a way that you might not be aware of, yet you can have confidence is happening because, you know, this idea that God is, is objectively at work in these, in these sacramental rites. Um, So so I think that's, I think that's another thing. On the other hand, I think evangelicals and charismatics uh, can really challenge Catholics to, uh, you know, well, for one thing, to, to put your faith at the center of your life. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, at least at its best, evangelicalism yeah. uh, has really made uh, has kind of demanded people not be just a little bit religious. That can always be the temptation of Catholicism. Right. Oh, I get my sacraments and then yeah. I just like live my life. Yeah. And evangelicalism, I think, has at its best demanded a real kind of personal engagement that uh-huh. that puts your faith central to your life. Uh-huh. Um, and and expects God to show up in ways that are are visible. Um, I, so I think those are things that the evangelical and charismatic traditions can, can offer Catholicism. Talk to us about prayer. What, what have you learned about, about prayer? What do you know about prayer? How does prayer uh, draw us up into the life of the, the love that is God? Say something about prayer. Yeah, what, what I don't know about prayer could probably fill a book. <laughs> um, maybe that'll be the next one, yeah. what I don't know about prayer. Um but I was I was actually thinking about this this morning that there are times when I find prayer immensely consoling, right? When you don't know what you can do for someone, you don't know what you can do for yourself, mm-hmm. but you can sort of lay it at God's feet in prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I think that that is you know, so prayer prayer can be really, I it's almost like you know a when it's a hot day and you get a cool drink of water, right? So prayer can be like that, but prayer can also be like a spiritual therapy, right? It's, Mm. it's like you go to the physical therapist and you need some muscle stretched and it's kind of painful, right? But if you want the full motion to be restored, you've got to put up with this painful therapy. And I, and I tend to think that prayer can also be like that. Mm. It can be a kind of a a stretching of our spirit Mm. that, uh, you know, for example, I mean, I think of particularly like praying for enemies, mm-hmm. praying for people you dislike, um, uh, kind of puts them in a new context and it kind of forces you to expand your heart in ways you might not want to be inclined to. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard to hate someone you pray for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And, but, you know, but you're not going to stop hating them maybe until you do the hard work of praying for them. So prayer can also be like a very, very challenging in that regard. Sure. What about when you don't know what to pray? And you're in that moment, you know, Paul talks about the the prayers, groans that words cannot express, and you've, you've talked about the mystical tradition that you've read about and taught through. And so what do you do when you're stuck in prayer and you don't know what to say? What does a morning, a Monday morning like that look like for you in, in the prayer room? Well, um, I mean, one of the things I do is, as a practice of prayer is I, I pray what uh, we Catholics call the liturgy of the hours, which is, you know, psalms and scripture um, that all Catholic clergy and some Catholic lay people kind of pray morning and evening. And I find the Psalms are, uh, I mean, every single possible human mood is yeah. contained in yeah. the Psalms. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I sometimes think that, you know, I will encounter in praying the Liturgy of the Hours exactly the Psalm I need. Mm, and yeah. even if I didn't know I needed it, mm, sure. right? And it could be a Psalm of, uh, you know, uh, it could be a psalm of lament. It could be a psalm of rejoicing. It, it could be an imprecatory psalm. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. God smite my enemy. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I think uh, you know sometimes there are those sort of happy coincidences. And then I think every so often, and not you know for me, not very often, but every so often there are those times when prayer goes beyond the words. Yeah. And it's just simply, you know, being in God's presence mm. and, you know, kind of seeing through the veil and, you know, really just in your bones sensing, yeah, God is love and mm. it's everywhere. So um, good. Like I said, I, I don't feel that way very often. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but I figure I feel that way just enough to keep me going. Yeah. I, I feel that way as much as God thinks I need to feel that way. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> we need to end in just a couple minutes here, but I want to ask you one final question. We're getting ready to head into the Advent season, and one of my favorite readings from the Advent season is Luke 21, and Jesus looking ahead to the end, and he says, Nations will be in anguish and terror at the roaring and tossing of the sea, the sun, moon, and stars flung from the skies. So it's the ripping apart of the world as they knew it, you know, all these apocalyptic symbols. But what I love is that he says in the middle of that, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That what looks like the end of your world in a lot of ways is the beginning of a fresh move of God. It's the inbreaking of God. And so I think that we're living in a moment, Fritz, when a lot of people are lamenting the end of their world and they have their hands up in the air going, oh my gosh, the sun, moon, and the stars, everything is spinning. And I think if we're listening carefully to Jesus... I think that what Jesus is saying is stand up and lift up your heads. Redemption is drawing near. There's an inbreaking of the kingdom. So I wonder if you could just speak to in the last couple minutes that we have. In the middle of all the turmoil that we're experiencing, where do you think we need to stand up and lift up our heads because redemption is breaking in? Where are you seeing fresh opportunities for the gospel? Where are you seeing us needing to revision what feels like calamity as opportunity for the good news to go forward? That's a that's a really great question, um, particularly as Advent is is approaching, and you know I'm trying to figure out well wh where where is hope to be found, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I do think that there is a tendency. Um, I mean, there's a sense in which everybody's world is comes to an end at some point. Mm -hmm. um, 
I my my father's about to turn 95 and and he said to me a number of years ago, you know, I just don't feel like it's my world anymore. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, the world has become a place that I don't really understand it and um all the things that I that that I used to orient myself in the world are now gone. Mm-hmm. Um and uh you know, but he's just kind of like along for the ride like, well, let's see what happens next. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not yet at that uh quite at that stage. Uh, but I feel in myself the temptation towards a kind of an apocalyptic mentality. Yeah. Not that I really think that the cosmos itself is passing away. I mean, or no, no, no more than it always is. Yeah. Uh, but a tendency to think, oh yeah, the, the world is just in permanent decline. It's all going to fall apart. It could be climate catastrophe. It could be, you know, social divisions. It could be, um, you know, war and rumors of war. It could be the degradation of our public institutions. I mean, it could be all sorts of things. It could be the sins of the church, right? And or massive apostasy. People, you know, leaving the churches. The pews looking ever more empty each Sunday. And I think ultimately, what I think about is we don't know where we are in history. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We don't know if we're at the very beginning of the story or if we're somewhere close to the end. Like we could still be the early church. <laughs> we could be. And, um, uh, you know, I think about uh, Pope John Paul II had uh, an encyclical on the Virgin Mary. And he said, well, the Virgin Mary is a symbol of the church. And we should look to her life to understand the path that the church must trod. And I, and I was reflecting on that a number of years ago, and I thought, well, so are we Mary at the foot of the cross? Are we Mary, you know, on the day of Pentecost? Yeah. Or are we Mary, like, you know, going on the flight into Egypt, sure. just mm-hmm. at the very beginning of the story, Yeah. right? What might seem like catastrophe to us could just be a little you know, a little bump in the road and the, on the, way the, the story kingdom. is yeah. still being written, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think I like to remind myself that that we really don't know where we are in the story and we won't, we won't. We'll know in hindsight. Yeah. Um, and, I, and we're not required to know yes. where we are in the sure. story. You know, I mean, God's in God's in charge of this. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if faith means anything, it's, it's faith that, you know that that this is a comedy that's going to end with the marriage of heaven and earth. It's not a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I I like to. I guess I chide myself when I get a little too gloomy about the state of the yes, world. Yes, that's right. Because we live by faith and not by sight. And that's right. I think um, I think what I love so much about your writing is that you call us to the radicality of the Christian faith as faith. We can talk about this, but we can't explain it. At some point, you just have to, you have to live as though your life depended upon these things, which, as it turns out, it does. (laughs) Right. Yeah. At every moment, you know, the Messiah is at the door, right? And, uh, and that's, that's true of all of us. You know, I'm actually an evangelical who I, um, admire greatly, um, Michael Gerson, the columnist for the Washington Post, uh, I saw that he died yesterday at yep. age 58. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, none of us knows the day or the hour. Yeah. Um, and I think all we can try and do is what I always thought that he did, which was, you know, bear public witness to our faith and try and admit when we get things wrong, try and do better. 
and ultimately, you know, trust that, you know, that, that God is good, that God yeah. is love, and that um, God will make it work out. Carl Barth said that uh, the, the academy is called to wash the feet of the church. And when I read your book, I thought, this is a man who has spent his life washing the feet of the church. He's been at Loyola 28 years. He's serving generations of students who will stand up and go serve the world. And you're putting them right, and you're helping us think. So we just want to say how thankful we are for your work washing the feet of the church, Dr. Bauer-Schmidt. Well, I really appreciate the chance to talk, to talk with you all about this stuff, because this stuff matters. 